Uh, thank you everybody for attending the Mic Drop Market Spaces today. Just as a reminder before we begin, this material is presented solely for informational and entertainment purposes only, and is not to be construed as a recommendation, solicitation, or an offer to buy or sell long or short any securities, commodities, or related financial instruments. As always, please contact a licensed professional before making any investment or trading decisions. And with that, we will introduce our guests. First, we have Robert Mullen. Robert Mullen is the founder and general partner of Marathon Resource Advisors, LLC, and has been investing in the energy and natural resource sector since 1994. Over the last three decades, he's been a portfolio manager at Franklin Templeton Group, the Cypress Funds, and Tocqueville asset management, as well as running his own firms focused on the center. His thoughts on energy and natural resources have appeared in Bloomberg, Barron's, The Wall Street Journal, and numerous other publications. Uh, he's recently appeared in interviews with MOI Global, Prometheus Alt, and Crux Investor, as well as published several videos on topics of energy transition and the role of commodities in geopolitics. Next, we have Leonard Miranoff. Leonid, oh my God. Leonid is currently head of materials at Pakut capital management in Hong Kong. He has over 17 years experience in the global commodity and commodity equity space, currently focusing on China and Southeast Asia. Pakat is a Hong Kong-based, long-only hedge fund manager investing in China and Asia with an exceptional track record going back to 2000. And last but not least, we have Aisha Tariq who is the co-founder of Macrovisor, where she leverages her extensive experience and expertise in financial markets to provide insightful and actionable macroeconomic research and cross-asset investment strategies to clients. She is a CFA chart holder with over 19 years experience in analyzing companies and investments, providing corporate financial advisory and structuring deals across sectors, across various sectors and regions. Uh, she started in corporate banking, then moved to private family business as the head of treasury and investments, managing a portfolio, uh, managing a substantial portfolio in real estate, hospitality, and private and public equities. And with that, thank you guys for giving us your time today. I really appreciate it. I know that it's very valuable. So we'll get right started to the questions. You guys know the deal will go in a round. As always, if you have a comment on anybody else's comment, please feel free to jump in and add your thoughts. Um, well, <clears throat> I'll start with Aisha just because of recent geopolitical events. So let's Let's dig in right to the Middle East with all the geopolitical tensions going on right now and the disruption of transit in the Red Sea. We seem to have seen a substantial reaction on both container and tanker rates, but no real reaction from the oil markets. Can you give us your perspective on why we really haven't seen a huge reaction? Hey, Tracy. <clears throat> thank you for having me on and thank you everyone for joining and listening. Yeah, so sure. So basically where we're having the problem right now is the Red Sea, right? This is called the Bab al-Mandeb Strait. Um, basically, we don't have a lot of oil going through here. So just to put things in perspective, we have about 7 million barrels per day of oil going through this area. And since, uh, you know, the issue started, we have about 50% of, like we've seen a drop of about 50% of uh, that amount, right? So the main area is the Strait of Hormuz, which is very close to where I live in Dubai. And that's actually the main area from where, you know, oil is transported from Saudi and uh, from the UAE. So basically, this is in a nutshell why we're not seeing a huge, you know, impact on oil because it's still building up, right? So we've seen a 50% drop from this area, but uh, at the same time, it's not a massive, you know, transit space for oil and oil tankers. Um, the other issue is as well that it's not like it's stopped completely. Right. So it's not like trade has been stopped completely. What's happening is the trade is being delayed. Right. And <clears throat> because of that, we're seeing, you know, freight rates go up. We're seeing, uh, I think, clean freight, which is, uh, you know, refined products. 
that freight has gone up about 30%, close to 30%. And crude oil freight has gone up about 9%. Now, when you consider all of this, um, that means about $2 per barrel on refined products and about $0.3 per barrel on, you know, uh, crude oil. So in the context of things, in the grander context of things, it's not a huge disruption to oil flows right now, right? But what I think is if this continues for another six months or seven months, um, then we could see some real impact because we don't have enough fleet. So fleet capacity growth is, you know, <laughs> I would say almost close to zero, actually. And um, so there's no there's no way for us to increase the fleet size here. And so once, you know, this if this is a protracted issue, that's when that, you know, seven million barrels per day will start to add up and probably start to push oil prices up a little bit more. For now, what you're seeing is more uh, sor- sort of pressure on Brent uh, versus you know, WTI. And we, that, that's what we will continue to see. But most of this is based on speculation versus actual hampering of, let's say, flows. Um, I hope that that was an answer. <laughs> No, that was excellent. Do you think, are we seeing any change um, in direction of flows because of this? Such as from the Middle East to, you know, to Asia rather than to, um, to, to North America, for, for example? So again, so everything usually, so more flows through the Strait of Hormuz, right? So if I can give you the number, I think it's about three times that flows through the Strait of Hormuz, which is close to us. So um, I don't know if you remember, I think a couple of weeks ago, there was this issue with uh, Iran and Pakistan actually having a little bit of a tiff. And that kind of you know, got me a little worried because that's very close to where the Strait of Hormuz is, right? So where we are. And so if that gets closed, that's when we will see maybe another five, seven dollars um, added to oil prices. Um, and if things get closed for a protracted period of time, then we could even see oil prices hit all the way, like cross hundred dollars a barrel. So when you say in terms of are the flows being, you know, uh, hampered? Yes, some of it is being hampered, which goes to Europe, right? Because they would go around the Strait of Hormuz, through the Red Sea, through the Suez Canal, and then to Europe. Um, but Europe so far is in an okay position as far as oil stock is concerned, and they are more reliant on natural gas, right? So for that reason, I think, you know, um, we're still seeing things, you know, kind of okay for now. Um, when you say America, now, obviously, that doesn't really play much of a part. And since this side is okay, so the other side of Saudi Arabia is okay. So I, I think that's from where we see the oil go to the Asia-Pacific side of you know uh, things. Now, Russia is another issue. Uh, Russia is being hampered because Russian flows of oil out of Russia that's that's the main issue that's being hampered. But the problem is most of us can't really put a huge number on that just yet or put an exact number on that just yet. Sorry, not huge, but a, an exact number on that because of all the fluctuations we've been seeing in Russian production. But we have seen a decline in Russian oil flows coming out of Russia because of this issue and because, of course, winter storms and other issues as well. And what do you think the chances are that I, Iran would actually stop oil? Fl- I mean, stop flows or shut down the strait? Uh, so, look, this is my personal opinion. Um, if Iran shuts down this strait, they're dead in the water. It, it's Iran who will be in trouble because. It, you may think that the oil comes out of Iran from here. Yes, that's true. But they, their access to the entire world is also through here. Okay. So a lot of the shipment of goods uh, and, and all kinds of goods, I mean, food, I mean, electronics, I mean, everything that people need to survive actually goes through the Strait of Hormuz to Iran. Right. So uh, and, and even some of them go through via Dubai, in fact. So if they shut this trade down, it's to their detriment more than the world's detriment. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And then let's move on to OPEC. Um, 
for a minute here. Does, uh, do you think OPEC extends the current cut program beyond Q1? And if so, what kind of message is this sending to the markets? Sure. So I think there, so there are two kinds of cuts, right? So there's one cut, which they did in April 2023, that I think that's about uh, 1.7 million barrels per day. And then they added to that, right? Uh, Saudi added an extra amount to that. So right now, Saudi is bearing the brunt of uh, these cuts still. Um, they're supposed to be producing something around, I think their capacity is 12 million dollars, uh, barrels per day. They're producing less or exporting less than 9 million barrels per day. And you can see the effect this is ha having on Saudi because if you look at their GDP growth in the last two quarters, their GDP went negative. And the biggest reason for that was oil-related flows, right? So <clears throat> I think it was minus 14% growth as in decline minus 14 percent decline in oil related activities so saudi's actually getting getting you know beaten down by this situation but i still think that they would want to keep the price of oil high because that is their main source of revenue and so i think they keep the larger cuts so like the status quo what we have right now i think they continue this for another quarter maybe until um, the middle of this year. Um, but I think towards the second half of the year, if demand starts to pick up and if we see things start to improve in China and if we see a little bit more of, you know, industrial production come back and we're seeing a little bit of that, right? We're seeing some of the PMIs and the ISMs. We're seeing improvement in that. So as we start to see a little bit more improvement um, in global activity, I think they remove that excess cut, but they still maintain their base cuts for now. Um, the other issue is as well, not all of the countries are uh, adhering to their cuts. Saudi is bearing the brunt of it, but the other countries are cheating, uh, so to speak. And this whole issue of, you know, this meeting and they were having all these, you know, disagreements during the meetings. Part of the reason for those disagreements was because these people were cheating on their quotas, the other countries, right? And there's still some of that going on. So they're still not sticking to the quota, the, the lowered quota right now. And, and so maybe that will be another issue that comes up during um, the next meeting. So their decision comes early March. Um, and I think they're going to keep the status quo for another three months, just to sum it up. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, we will definitely come back to you. I want to move over to Leonid. And I want to talk about Asia a little bit and Europe a little bit. So uh, first, what are your thoughts on the Chinese economy and demand for uh, not only just oil, but commodities in general, metals, et cetera? <clears throat> and should we be now looking uh, to India for growth if China remains stagnant? Or do you see uh, China kind of getting over this hump and uh, things start improving uh, internally. Hi, Tracy. First of all, thank you for having me. Um, and the answer is yes. As in, we should absolutely be looking to India uh, for growth. It's uh, clearly going to be the engine for commodity demand growth in the 2020s. However, having said that, uh, China is going to have a robust recovery as well. It's my sort of uh, belief at this point, right? I think uh, the challenge for all of us uh, in 2023 has been accounting for the slow opening up of the Chinese economy, right? I think the uh, expectation in January 23 was that uh, it's going to open with a bang, uh, similar to what the US did in 21, uh, and that we're going to have a great year for domestic consumption, we're going to have a great year for domestic production. Instead, domestic consumption disappointed big time and only rebounded, started the rebound in around about August to September uh, 2023, whereas uh, domestic production actually uh, surprised to the upside. And by production, I mean production of actual goods, right? The uh, output, economic output, basically. Uh, things like EVs, uh, machine building, um, anything but construction, <laughs> residential construction, basically, boomed in China in 2023. But of course, um, th that kind of uh, went somewhat unnoticed, given the overall sort of struggles of the economy and of the financial markets. Um, 
now that the domestic demand is on the rebounding path and uh, that is indicated by the PMIs, right, by uh, consumption trends, all, all of this is indicating better domestic consumption. Now, interestingly, oil stands out here because China's actually had a record year for oil demand in 2023. A lot of it was fueled by... Um, importing Russian oil to refine it and sell as diesel and gasoline into the US and European markets. But even that was actually dampened by year end by sort of fairly robust domestic demand. And this is somewhat ironic given the uh, sort of the rate of EV penetration in China and all this talk about how EV penetration is eating into uh, petroleum demand in the US. You, you think, well, here is a market with much greater EV penetration where uh, we're still seeing growth in gasoline and diesel um, demand. Uh, and in fact, it's the EV demand that is driving greater oil usage through NAFTA and uh, petrochemicals that uh, go to Towards EV production. So overall, I'm actually really optimistic on um, people's perception of Chinese economy in 2024. I feel like it's uh, gotten onto much better footing in the second half of 23, and this will start feeding through uh, to the rest of the world in uh, sort of in uh, first half of 24. Maybe as soon as uh, the end of the uh, lunar uh, New Year celebrations, and. Uh, in terms of broader region, I think uh, absolutely you're right. India w will, of course, be a uh, very significant uh, engine for growth in terms of both physical commodity usage, but also in terms of value add in the industry. But at the same time, you look at ASEAN, right? I mean, ASEAN is likely to grow at like 4 or 5% of um, oil demand for the next sort of three, four years at the very least, and probably longer, right? If you look at uh, the slightly frontier parts uh, of Asia, look at Pakistan, uh, all of it is pointing towards actually a fairly robust um, demand sort of path up. So again, uh, pretty optimistic on, on, on the Asian side. Are there any uh, countries in particular um, outside of China and India that we should be keeping an eye on that you think uh, look poised to do very well on the commodity side? Well, again, look at Vietnam, right? I mean, uh, energy use in Vietnam is growing at 8% per year, right? I mean, pretty, <laughs> you're going to run into some pretty serious demand growth numbers, uh, you know, at that sort of rate, right? Um, and again, even in places like Pakistan that have been a bit of a basket case over the past sort of, well, few decades, really, uh, it seems like they're getting their act together somewhat, right? I mean, you look at uh, the most recent government actions, they've decided to approve a fairly sizable dividend to the OGDC holders. OGDC is their local sort of uh, uh, national oil company, right? I mean, they seem to be approving a fairly sizable capex there as well. So, um, you know, they're, they're making all the right noises, as it were, and making all the right moves. Um, and again, I feel like it's impossible to over-exaggerate. With a booming India and a robust China, Asia is going to do well, right? I mean, it'll be very hard to be an Asian uh, state and not participate in all of this. You're like, and wherever you look, right? Whether it's fairly isolated uh, countries like Myanmar, who nevertheless deal directly with China, or if you look like at places like Singapore, right? I mean, all of these uh, guys are in fact levered plays on uh, the economic growth in India and China, and with both of them doing well. Uh, it'll be hard for these guys not to follow suit. And then I had a question on uh, Russia. Um, the IMF has actually shown Russia's GDP has actually grown this year despite all of these sanctions. Um, how much is oil and gas contributing to this? And is there fear that they become too reliant on China, especially for gas? Uh, yes, absolutely. The fear is there. Uh, I think the fear is uh, prevalent in amongst policymakers as well as ordinary people, right? I mean, um, you, wherever you look in terms of uh, physical goods availability, almost all of it is sourced in China now. Uh, China sold almost a million vehicles into Russia in 2023. Uh, China supplied most of uh, fast-moving consumer goods into Russian supermarkets. And Russians are, are noticing, right? And in return, Russia is selling oil and gas into China, right? And, uh, you know, at first, uh, there was this talk that China and India would be the leading countries buying Russian oil, but not the only two. 
in 2023, we basically ended up in a situation where it was basically China and India buying Russian oil and very little volume going elsewhere with maybe some Malaysian uh, clandestine transfers, uh, who, which also mostly ended up in China, right? And then you look at it and you think, well, uh, who has the power in this relationship, right? And now you're seeing Indians playing hardball on terms with like a bunch of Russian tankers stranded uh, on the way to India, still negotiating for payment. You look at uh, Chinese guys. Uh, the, 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 there was sort of a fairly important piece of news in that regard happening just earlier today when three uh, fairly major Chinese banks refused to uh, deal with Russian counterparties. Now, whether it's to do with uh, not willing to take currency risk over Lunar New Year or anything else, right? But as of today, three leading trade financing banks in China are, are closing their relationships with Russian counterparts, at least for the next two weeks, right? And uh, being exposed to those sort of risks cannot possibly be a comfortable position uh, for reference to be in. Having said that, it's not like they have too many options, right? So uh, they're still selling into India and into China as much as they can. And uh, they also understand that uh, there, there isn't a third um, counterparty who would be willing to take as much of gas and oil as, as these two. Um, and therefore, um, you know, the, their options at this point remain uh, limited. Now, uh, in terms of gas sales into China, it's one of those where, yeah, sure, you, you're dependent on that one buyer, but that buyer is also dependent on Russian gas because the power Siberia pipelines, they come into the north of China. That is actually quite hard to supply uh, from other sort of points of entry so like if you think about lng infrastructure it's mostly i mean obviously it has to be focused <laughs> along the coast right i mean duh. Uh, but uh, at the same time the uh, internal gas um, supply uh, networks aren't fully mature just yet and whilst for example china energy grid is is really quite good at uh, cross-supplying uh, capacity from one region to another, the gas supply networks aren't there yet. So they're, they're, they're sort of, they're much more regional. And in that sense, you end up in a situation where the north of China basically ends up depending on Russian supplies and Russia ends up being dependent on Chinese uh, buying and taking the gas, right? And that makes this codependent relationship that is possibly quite stable, at least for the next, whatever, five, maybe 10 years, right? So, um, and I think th that extent of it is fine, but mm, uh, there was uh, some talk about how Russians are interested in lower oil prices to a degree, obviously, because higher oil prices incentivize U.S. production and U.S. production comes with a degree of uh, natural gas that is then being sold at uh, very low prices that in turn competes with Russian pipeline gas in markets like Europe and markets like China as well. And I think that uh, there, there is a degree of validity uh, of this argument to say that, yes, for sure, in the longer term, uh, that is absolutely the relationship. However, in the extreme short term, um, 70 to 75% of Russian uh, oil and gas uh, revenue comes from oil and oil products exports, right? So uh, gas is a much smaller component there. Uh, so oil remains uh, the focus. And this oil policy in terms of how much uh, production Russia is willing to uh, admit to, how much exports is willing to admit to, right? I mean, all of this is much more situational than uh, sort of planned in advance, right? I mean, they, they look at balancing the budget as much as they can, trying to uh, generate as much overseas uh, foreign currency income as they can. And uh, if they see opportunities to sell more volume, they, they will probably do it, which obviously opens up a significant uh, sort of uh, ceiling of sorts on uh, the oil market. And uh, until uh, the point where demand goes to beyond like 104 million barrels a day, which obviously unlikely this year, but you know that's generally the direction of travel. Uh, until that sort of happens, you will, you will have this incremental Russian barrels that can just appear in the market. Uh, and this is basically what's been happening. So Novak, the uh, Russian minister of uh, energy, spoke to the parliament yesterday, and he said that on, <laughs> according to his numbers, uh, Russian exports were down about 3.3% uh, on the year, uh, which I found quite funny because 
you know, he, he basically said, look, we're, we're doing about 234 million tons of exports a year now, which is like 4.7 uh, million barrels a day. But of course, the actual estimates of, of Russian deliveries varied anywhere from like three to five and a half. And so you look at it and you say, well, okay, but I mean, like, what is the value in something like this? And I think the value in, in, in this is to say that they're being very opportunistic, right? I mean, when they see an opportunity to sell into a market at a healthy price, they'll do that. And uh, when Saudis really go after them and tell them, guys, you know, stop doing stuff like that, uh, they at least uh, tell the market that they stopped. And maybe they pause these extra sales for a month or two. But net-net, uh, again, the uh, point for the Russian government right now becomes trying to generate as much export revenue as possible, uh, which means taking advantage of price spikes opportunistically. Excellent. Thank you. And we'll come back and talk about Europe a little bit. I want to um, talk to Robert here for a little bit. Um, I know I put up... I, I said I promised that we would talk about this. So I put a chart of uh, it's kind of a, a little bit outside of oil and gas, but I put a chart of debt to GDP uh, for the U.S. last week, where Apollo stated that debt outstanding will grow to 200 uh, percent, and you responded it'll be much worse than that if trends remain on track. So can you kind of go over this? And I'll actually post this chart to Twitter, um, and it's a implications and and we can tie this into commodities saying what do you think this will do for hard asset demand sure tracy can you hear me okay perfect great well greetings from rather soggy northern california um yeah the chart in particular that uh, i see a lot so people will look at the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office numbers that say, yes, U.S. debt is, you know, kind of 100 percent or just north of 100 uh, percent of GDP right now and could get as bad as 200 percent debt to GDP in 2050. So I did this analysis three years ago. Uh, and what um, what what it told you is and the, my only assumption was that the CBO would be similarly as wrong going forward as they had been in the past. In other words, in the decade of the 2010s, they underestimated the amount of debt that the U.S. issued. Uh, US the, the, the country actually issued about 70% more debt than the CBO estimated, so they were wrong by a pretty good chunk. Uh, and GDP underperformed their expectations by about 30%. Um, so wrong in the in the wrong in a bad way on both and so if all you do is extrapolate those two things onto their projections going out to 2050 what you get is debt to gdp not going to 200 percent uh but 400 uh, percent and so the numbers behind that are pretty unnerving um you know right now we collect about four trillion dollars give or take in tax revenue um, the interest on the debt has gone from about $300 billion a year um, to over a trillion dollars a year. So it's tripled because of both the acceleration of more debt being issued as well as higher rates that we're having to deal with. But if you look out, you know, what this tells you is that by 2050, that a $20, a $20 trillion economy, maybe GDP goes to $40 trillion. Um, and so therefore debt would be 160 trillion. Now the problem is if you then double tax revenues, so you go from 4 trillion to 8 trillion, um, a 5% interest rate on 160 trillion dollars worth of debt is, a, is that same 8 trillion. So we'd go from 25% of US revenues paying the interest expense to 100%. Um, that means you can't pay for anything else. And so this actually understates the problem because this extrapolation does not take into account that there are higher interest rates and more interest to be paid on this higher debt as it goes up. So there's really a, there's like a George Soros reflexiveness to this. So none of this is, is to say that the U.S. is going to default on its debt imminently. But what it does tell you is that the U.S. needs to or what the reaction that the U.S. will have is to effectively inflate away that debt. And that's where the story comes back to hard assets, for better or for worse, the area of the market that I've been concentrating on for the better part of uh, 30 plus years. So uh, I think it is part of a good you know, backdrop and mosaic, along with constrained supply, 
um, along with, you know, likely still healthy demand, certainly in traditional commodities, as well as potentially, you know, significantly accelerating demand for metals and materials that are required for the energy transition. So, you know, in a market where it seems like everything is priced to for uh, price to perfection, with the exception of energy and resource equities that are priced for a recession or something worse, you know, I, I think there's value there. But uh, at this point, the market does not appear to agree with me. And then you posted a chart, and I, again, will post this to Twitter, uh, a couple of weeks ago saying this is the most important chart of the decade, and it was tech versus commodities. So can you go over this? Because I thought it was fantastic and really, really interesting. Um, and it, tell us what this means for investors. Yeah, so this is a this is a chart that I originally published again, you know, two or three years ago. I just updated it recently um, to take into account the last three years of capital expenditures for both the technology and information technology sectors, as well as the commodity and resource sectors. And so really what it looks at is over time, how what percentage of uh, S&P capital expenditures has come from the tech sector? versus the energy and material sector. And can that provide some sort of signal to us where there can be a regime shift that tends to happen once every seven or 10 years, uh, where the stocks of one, uh, you know, significantly outperform the other. Um, and as it turns out, that's the way it's worked for, you know, the better part of the last 35 years, where you have industries that spend very aggressively, the end result of that is that returns are competed away and go down. Um, the flip side of that is when technology does well, it's typically when energy and resources are not doing well, people are not uh, focusing on value when they're focusing on growth. And the capital expenditures from the resource industry tend to dwindle, you know, down to, you know, something like 10 or 15% of total S&P CapEx. And so that's when the best returns are typically gotten when the industry itself is not even investing in itself. That's when you get forward returns that have a tendency to be fairly good, particularly in industries where it takes five, seven, 10 years for capital that you invest today to really generate a return because of the time to construct a mine or to build a major offshore oil platform or, or all of the things that happen in resources. So, you know, look, it, this is not something that says it has to happen today, but this reversion back to the mean is relatively powerful. And so when you see massive amount of capital expenditures going into the tech space, you would expect returns to fall. And when you see severe underspending in the natural resource space, you would expect returns to rise. And yet technology stocks are valued as if their returns will go higher from here. And resource stocks are valued as if they will never earn a reasonable uh, return on their cost of capital. Uh, but you see this improving, right? <laughs> well, well, I think it, I, yeah, I think it, I think it has to. The only, the only way you get resource capital expenditures to come back into the market is higher prices, um, and that that will take time. It'll take a combination of higher commodity prices and therefore higher returns, coupled with investors actually paying companies to grow. So that's been a relatively unique characteristic of the last four or five years is that most resource companies have been punished for growth, for M&A, for, uh, you know, rising capital expenditures. Um, investors have punished them, uh, whether that be ESG related or simply, uh, you know, a, a backward looking belief that when these guys spend too much capital, they do it poorly. So some of that is very much earned. Um, but yes, it has to fix itself because otherwise, you know, we don't have enough oil, we don't have enough copper, uh, we don't have enough. And if you can't, you know, plug in the internet, I mean, the the, the power demands of AI alone. Um, the stat that I saw recently is that when uh, Google adds AI to its search, it increases the power consumption for the server farm uh, needs by fivefold. So they'll probably get better than that, better at that over time. Um, but there's an enormous toll on the grid for the assumed rate of acceleration in AI um, that is completely incongruous with 
you know, copper companies or base metal companies or other infrastructure companies, you know, trading at, at multiples that, uh, you know, are in the are in the basement. So, yes, I think it'll fix itself. It always has. And I think there's no reason that it won't in the future. And then I want to turn to U.S. oil production really quickly. Um, despite we have, you know, lower rate counts, lower frac counts, frac spread counts, production has seemed to defy the odds on an upward trajectory. So what do you feel is going on here? I.e., What are maybe some of the reasons for this? And is the current rate of change sustainable? Yeah, that's a really good question. I would agree that U.S. production was a little bit more buoyant last year than I would have expected. Part of that is due to a little bit of the nuance in um, gas liquids and how they are counted. So I'm not sure you really saw a million plus barrels of growth. I think it's probably more like six or 700,000 barrels. Um, that said, it was a relatively unique period of accelerated productivity. You know, you had a lot of private co's in the U.S. who were dressing themselves up for sale. We have seen that M&A happen and growth rate from those assets should fall. You had the blowdown of a huge drilled uncompleted well, the duck inventory, uh, which gives you a very high return on capital. But that's not necessarily sustainable when ducks have, have been brought down so significantly. So if you look at kind of and what we've done is look at kind of two year rolling capital efficiencies. And the ability to grow production by what folks are saying out there, six, 700,000 barrels a day for the next couple of years, would imply a capital efficiency that's, you know, for, you know, 40 or 50 percent better than what we have seen historically. I'm not sure that's going to be the case. I don't think you can point to one place or one company where it's going to disappoint. Um, but. I would suggest that the you know moving to more incremental acreage with uh, you know further away from uh, infrastructure with you know moving from tier one to tier two uh, plus or even tier three rock, you know all of those things would indicate that I think the growth rates will slow down. And if that's the case, you know we've got a we've got an issue as, as to where the barrels come from. Excellent. Thank you. And we will come back to you. I still have more questions. Let's go back to Aisha. Let's go back to the Middle East here for a minute. Um, what are your thoughts on the recent Saudi announcement to forego planned capacity extension? I know this was months in the making, contrary to how it was reported by the media. Uh, but what do you feel their reason is for this? And should investors be worried? So yeah, that was it was an interesting announcement. Yeah, one million barrels. Um, but so I don't think I, I don't think this is permanent. I don't think this decision is permanent. I think you know what we're seeing right now is because we have lower demand um, and American supply is you know uh, quite high. Let's say it's it surprised to the upside, right? Because of all these, I think they're thinking about, you know, just holding off on this for a while. I doubt it's going to be um, a long-term proposal. Anyway, they're only producing below 9 million barrels now. So I don't think that this is going to be something that sticks around. Um, but most likely they've done this because they don't want to send the wrong message right now saying that they're increasing production capacity and therefore, you know, oil will be free-flowing very soon. Excellent. And then uh, daily exports of Saudi crude to the U.S. recently fell to their lowest levels in three decades. Is this due to increased demand, say, from Asia or elsewhere, or a political change in the dynamic between these two countries? So the thing is, Tracy, I, do, I don't really like to comment on politics. So whatever the reasons are, I think it's got to do with aid because they're cutting overall, you know, output, right? So we've already seen that decline in output. Uh, B, I think America's producing their own uh, oil right now. And so therefore, they don't need Saudi oil as much as before. Um, and I think uh, the other thing is uh, there is demand that is being shifted elsewhere, right? But overall, basically, I, I'm just going to go back to what I said before. Saudi is actually getting hit on the oil front um, in terms of how much they are actually exporting. So overall, it's just lower exports, you know? That totally makes sense. I didn't mean to put you on the spot with a political question. <laughs> 
No, no, no. It's not about being on the spot. It's just that I don't know there. Uh, neither of us can actually tell who's political, you know, who's got a political view and who's not, right? Like, we don't know why Saudi is doing this or why they're not doing this. So I, I'd rather not comment on what they're thinking that from that angle. You know Absolutely. What I mean? um, and then what are your thoughts on, I don't, or if you have any thoughts on Iran's recent announcement that they're going to help with Venezuela production. I mean, they've long been in Venezuela, but they really haven't poured money into the sector like Russia and China have in the past. Um, and do you think this means the U.S. will place further sanctions sanctions on both countries? So right now, I think Iran is in the hot seat, right? So it's basically uh, now this, I think, is more of a political ploy than anything else. Um, I don't think Iran has what it takes to sort of uh, boost production in Venezuela. They're struggling themselves. I know they've been producing a lot, a lot, a lot more than they have over the last um, couple of years. But then at the same time, they don't have sort of the technology or the wherewithal to go into another country and then start to, you know, help with their production. I think Again, this is sort of just a move, given everything that's happening in the Middle East and given, you know, the U.S.'s support uh, or not support of Iran, let's say. Um, so the, it's it, this is, I think, a little bit more political than, you know, Saudi not exporting as much. And then uh, do you have, is there any region in the Middle East right now that we should be particularly focused on that may be being glossed over by uh, the media right now that we should be paying attention to. In, in what respect? Uh, just in, in respect to oil and gas, you know, I don't know if there's, you know, any other problems brewing elsewhere and or, you know, the relationship of Middle Eastern crude producers, if there is any issues between them. So between the producers here, not really. So we always hear about this fight between Saudi and the UAE, but truth be told, they're actually very good friends. Um, and the UAE has capacity. They want to uh, pump oil and they, they've been wanting to do that for a while, right? So they've developed all these uh, fields and they have the capacity to pump. And so that was, it, it was, I won't say it was a fight, Honestly, what looked like a fight from the outside, it wasn't really a fight. Uh, they're really good friends with Saudi. And so within the Middle East, I think there isn't very a lot of dissension as much as people would like to sort of make up from the outside. Um, but I think what what is concerning to me is um, who's taking whose side in this battle in the Middle East, you know? And I know they all agree on certain aspects, but today uh, and yesterday, I think Saudi and UAE, they both came out condemning, you know, what's happening in Gaza. And so this political issue, if, I mean, right now it's still, they're not very uh, strongly taking sides, but if they do start to strongly take sides, that's when, that's my concern, right? Now, the good thing about you know, Saudi and UAE, in many respects, UAE especially, they have a good relationship with the U.S. Um, so they may not, you know, they're friendly. And so they may not actually, you know, raise a voice. And UAE always likes to remain apolitical in most circumstances. But um, so we'll see how this goes. If they start condemning the situation very strongly, that could actually lead to a little bit more of, you know, people taking sides and the situation becoming a little bit more political than we want. Absolutely makes sense. And we definitely should be on the lookout for that. Um, and then we'll go back to Leonid. I uh, want to turn our focus on Europe right now. So what are the current thoughts on European uh, oil and, or energy in general, oil and gas demand? It seems manufacturing is cratering and uh, particularly in Germany, where the president of the biggest German industry association just described Germany's energy policy, and I quote, absolutely toxic. Um, is this a permanent permanent decline or do you see a bottom in, it, in sight and a pickup in industry? Because it's not only Germany where, you know, PMIs are 
in the toilet, so to speak. So <laughs> well, do, do we see a bottom to this? I mean, there's always a bottom somewhere, right? But uh, quite frankly, yes, absolutely. Let's note that the biggest declines came in the more power-intensive and hydrocarbon-intensive industries, so like your chemicals. Uh, BASF in particular, uh, you know, took it on the chin. And it is quite clear that, the, you know, they've been geared towards using Russian pipeline gas and Druzhba pipeline flows of oil uh they've been used to it it's they took them for granted now they're gone and it's not clear how they should be restructuring their economy right um i think overall given the broader european move to be more protectionist be more sort of quote-unquote green um i suppose there, there probably is some kind of a pathway for them to become much more more of a closed uh, economy servicing other european producers because if you think about this carbon um duty that uh, they're living in europe where you know if, if they see that you've underpaid for your carbon <laughs> in your manufacturing process whatever that may mean uh that they will charge you upon entering the European Union. So all these measures are basically designed to keep uh, European manufacturing competitive as they switch away from fossil fuels towards using more green fuels. Now, again, how green and what it actually means is, is, is a long conversation and it's not particularly productive at that stage. But um, for sure, there are people in Germany who think that th th there is actually a way out of this that is maybe uh, longer term sustainable. However, in the sort of short to medium term, they've authorized construction of new natural gas burning uh, power generation capacity to replace the nuclear that they <clears throat> phased out for some reason. Um, and net-net, it appears uh, to me that uh, they're being bailed out by, by US LNG availability, right? Had that not been there, I, I quite frankly don't know what they would have done. Probably burn a lot more coal, which clearly would have been, you know, worse outcome for everybody. Um, I think, um, you know, you're seeing the wind uh, energy producers struggle and obviously Orsted uh, coming out with an announcement this week uh, on, you know, on, on their financial struggles, I think is a good uh, indicator of where, where the economics of all these offshore uh, wind projects in Europe is. And you look at BP and their struggles with their investments over, you know, the years and their pivot towards what they call beyond petroleum, right? I mean, uh, it, it clearly didn't uh, play out exactly as these guys were anticipating. But that's not to say that it is completely um, like impossible to get to a stage where renewables play a much bigger part of the power generation mix. Uh, it's just it takes an awful lot more investment than they've done to date. It means investing in storage capacity at a different level right i mean orders of magnitude different to where we are right now and it'll take an awful long time uh to get there and probably another um sort of uh iteration of uh technological development of, of all these technologies to make to make them a little bit uh better right now so all of this is to say that yes absolutely germany is the one that suffered the most right they're the ones with the industrial base in europe in germany manufacturing is roughly double of the uh, economic contribution of manufacturing places like france or the uk so uh they are the ones that were most exposed and they're the ones that are suffering the most right and the industries that use the feedstocks the most are obviously the ones that are taking the brunt of the adjustment um However, uh, now that it's here, now that the adjustment has happened, right, it seems like incrementally uh, it will be difficult for things to get, get significantly worse. Now, the, the, the real exposure comes from uh, gas prices, right? I mean, if gas prices stay at current-ish levels normalized over the course of the year, and obviously, you know, obviously more expensive during winter times, cheaper in the summer, but roughly in the current uh, sort of price range, uh, they're okay. If we get to a point where there is competition for uh, LNG volumes. If, say, the United States, for instance, sticks with the Biden plan to export less LNG <laughs> and thereby putting pressure on uh, their European partners, uh, that, that'll be the point at which the second iteration of the squeeze will come upon the, Jap uh, the German uh, producers. And then since you brought up this new carbon border tax, how do you 
how do you see this affecting uh, the commodities markets? You know, iron, steel, aluminum, cement, electricity, fertilizer, hydrogen. There's so many items on this list. It's incredible. So what I mean, isn't that going to ultimately make things more expensive for well <laughs> for everybody right uh, first of all the european consumers yeah no it's gonna suck right i mean it's going to be terrible and uh it's not clear what the benefit of it all is right say um i'm a manufacturer and my manufacturing capacity is in china all right um how on earth can you possibly manage my um uh, actual foot my carbon footprint or whatever it is that you want to base this calculation of right i mean maybe you can say well the overall chinese uh emissions are like uh, are this but then i turn around and say yeah but my capacity is in say yunnan so i'm using mostly hydro so my actual footprint is really really low how do you go about certifying this what are you taxing and like what are you applying your taxes to i like i have a lot more questions than answers at this point now the whole idea sounds really uh, daft to me like i don't think it is feasible to enforce it i don't think it's feasible to um make a, a realistic assumption and an assessment of how much uh carbon should be taxed like that's th th setting aside the whole uh point whether it should be taxed to begin <laughs> begin with right so i think what it comes down to me as is it's a framework to impose uh, uh tariffs and sanctions on trade partners you don't particularly uh want to be your biggest trade partners kind of thing right so for example uh chinese electric vehicles are extremely price competitive in europe right now um whether European governments would want this to be the case or not, well, I mean, I think quite clearly no. So they will impose direct tariffs on them, but maybe keep those to a fairly manageable number, 15 to 20%, but then hit them again on carbon adjustment. And all of a sudden, you know, you're dealing with, you know, an overall 50% tariff that, you know, is sufficiently restrictive to give... Uh, domestic competition a chance right uh so i feel like that that's the general application of this that we will actually see and in terms of its practicality and in terms of its actual uh commitment to a cleaner world or whatever it is they want to call it i i, I frankly doubt its usefulness yeah it sounds like another program to shoot themselves in the foot personally mm. but <laughs> and we'll move back to uh, Robert. And before we do the final round really quickly, I know we're we're getting close on time here, but um, I want to talk about uh, with Robert the Trans Mountain expansion, if it ever gets completed. Um, how do you think, if any, this affects the U.S.? Does this mean less heavy crude for the U.S.? Because it seems like they'd rather sell it to Asia for a better price. Um, and then how does that affect uh, refining in the U.S.? Um, so I tell you what, I'm going to do a really bad political uh, trick and I'm going to answer your question with something totally unrelated because that's not an area I, that I'm, I'm, I'm conversant in, but I'm not sure I have a whole lot to add on Trans Mountain and, 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 the, and the impacts there. What I'd really like to do is riff on what Lena said, um, because I agree wholeheartedly uh, in what he was talking about in terms of the inflationary impact uh, of the political imperative to move towards more renewables. It's not that we shouldn't do it. We just have to realize it's going to be significantly more expensive. I've got an interesting stat for you, which is the excess energy bill last over the last uh, 24 months in Europe. So it, effectively what they paid in addition to what they had historically typically paid um, was north of $300 billion. And that's the same number. So that's, that's what they paid. That was like their extra fuel and electricity bill over the last two years. That's not dissimilar from the entirety of private equity capital invested in shale, both uh, upstream and midstream from 2010 to 2020. So um, you're talking about a significant portion of the capital that helped develop an incredible resource, admittedly, um, that they spent in one year just to kind of keep the lights on. Um, so to me, that's a really remarkable statement uh, as to the economic impact of really bad political choices as to what your energy system looks like. So again, I apologize for pivoting on you, but um, but that that's, was something that I really wanted to touch on. 
All good. We, I, I love any kind of information. And then what are your thoughts on the Biden administration halting LNG export license? What does this mean? What kind of time frame or, you know, what kind of time frame is this on? And will this even hold given we already have a bipartisan group of lawmakers holding hearings on yeah, it? Yeah, good Lord, it's disastrous. Um, you know, we're, we, there are many ways that this administration has, you know, effectively tried to disincentivize the domestic production of natural gas, which, you know, we're trying to tell our global allies that we, you know, can help them in their fight against trying to get off of, um, you know, Russian gas or other gas. And then all of a sudden we're going to decrease supplies and, and kind of leave them in the lurch. I think it's just, it's, it's, it, it's a, it's a perfect example of the state of U.S. energy diplomacy, um, which is, you know, it's a, it's a dumpster fire. Um, and so can it hold? Maybe it just depends on how long um, politicians can be irrational. Uh, if it does, it costs U.S. jobs. Uh, it costs, uh, you know, energy security for many of our uh, major allies around the world. It's just got so many bad ramifications that it's hard to believe that they could stand fast in their idiocy and, uh, and, and sort of, you know, make this their, their battleground. But, you know, I just, I, I, I've, Long since, uh, you know, I've been doing this for 30 or 35 years and betting against the short sightedness and stupidity of politicians has been, you know, a losing bet for most of that time period. And then on Venezuela, do you think that U.S. will reinstate uh, sanctions in April after this six month release relief has uh, expired due to uh, the fact that they tried to negotiate with a dictator who lied of course <laughs> but um <laughs> I, uh, but yeah, I kinda, I kinda, and then what is, what does that mean for you know u.s uh heavy oil that we yeah, yeah i mean it kind of tells you how how desperate u.s politics are is that is when we're you know we're trying to incentivize the production of uh, crude that is the most uh, sort of dirty, carbon intensive uh, and happening under a incredibly repressive uh, regime um, in the Venezuelans while we're you know, trying to discourage it in North America, where it is significantly cleaner, you know, under administration, you have a long list of reasons why it's better to be producing here than there. Um, but depending on how desperate the current administration is to try and get gasoline prices down before the election, um, you know, we'll see. Uh, I just think it's really, really hard. Look, I was in the room in 1995. It was Kidder Peabody who was holding a conference and the head of PETAVESA was there. And he said that they were going to increase oil production, you know, I think from whatever they had at the time, maybe 3 million barrels up to 6 million barrels. And oil crashed, yeah, you know, the next, uh, you know, over a week, week or so uh, at the idea of this massive resource coming to bear. Meanwhile, they have gotten their industry back into the Stone Age uh, by effectively deporting everybody with a college education. Um, and now where everybody else is running on supercomputers, they're running on carbon paper. So the idea that we can get significantly more volumes out of Venezuela without a, a significant political regime shift and the application of huge amounts of Western capital, I think is just a fairy tale. And, you know, I, just, I, I don't see it getting any better than that. I absolutely agree. Um, and I, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. I absolutely agree with that. <laughs> All right. And then uh, we'll hit the final round. The final round is the same question for all of you. You can talk about something that um, we didn't get to talk about that you wanted to mention that you think is important and what and or, you know, what should we as investors in this industry be paying a close attention to over, say, the next 12 to 24 months? And we'll start with Aisha. Yeah, so uh, Tracy, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, the demand and supply situation and positioning right now. So a couple of things that I was reading. Okay, first of all, OPEC production was down by about 400,000 barrels 
last month. Okay, so supply is slightly lower, but this isn't putting a lot of pressure on prices, which tells me that, you know, demand is also softer. So we know that there's been a little bit of, you know, warmer weather and, um, you know, uh, a little bit of pullback in China as well. And so all of this is sort of contributing to lower demand and supply is sort of kind of okay right now, not even with the OPEC reduction, um, mainly because we are getting supplies from the US. So in and then in terms of positioning, um, net managed money is, you know, long. Um, and they're at about a four month high, but it's not stretched, right? So positioning is not stressed, stretched, we're still okay. Most of this positioning is because, you know, shorts are coming off versus longs going up. So that's just something to bear in mind. And then when we're looking at options positioning, um, implied volume is actually quite low. Um, and I was reading something from Goldman Sachs that said, and they have this nice tracker where they track implied vol versus, you know, the geopolitical uh, volatility. And what they're trying to say is that the implied vol on oil options are lower than the geopolitical volatility, which goes to show that, you know, people are not really thinking that this geopolitical situation right now is putting a lot of pressure on oil prices. And this is why every time we get a headline, oil prices spike, but then it gets starts to get faded during the day. It's because there's no real positioning um, in terms of higher purchases, let's say. And um, finally, I think um, the other thing I read from Goldman Sachs is that they're saying According to the implied volatility positioning, uh, people are looking at June, July um, for an end to this geopolitical tension situation. I don't know how they managed to calculate that, but it, I just thought it was an interesting thing that I read and I wanted to share it. That's all. Excellent. All good stuff to share. I love it. Um, and Leonid, same question. You could talk about something that you wanted to mention that we didn't get a chance to talk about and or, you know, what should we as investors be looking at over the next 12 to 24 months? Yeah, Tracy, I just wanted to make a broader point about um, sort of being an energy equity investor, how much of a broad palette you have right now um, looking around the world. I mean, obviously, even in the US and Canada, you have equities that are sort of pretty reasonably priced. But as you go out to Asia, oof, <laughs> you, you really have some exceptionally excitingly uh, priced things out there. And in particular, the sort of the Chinese big oils, they look, continue to look great, right? I mean, PetroChina had a 50% total return year last year. Still looks crazy cheap on uh, free cash flow multiples, if EBITDA, whatever, whatever multiples you want to use it. Like CNOC obviously continues to be uh, an exceptionally exciting company, but of course, you know, uh, Americans can't really buy it on account of the sanctions. But uh, if you look around the big oils in Asia, they all look really, really good. At the same time, they've also started performing, or at least some of them have, right? Uh, the ONGC is up almost 40% year-to-date, right? Uh, OGDC, the Pakistani one, is up almost 45% year-to-date, right? You, you look at these things and you think, well, <laughs> wow, it doesn't seem like anybody's talking about that. And uh, yeah, right? I mean, in the right markets, uh, oil names have started moving and uh, most of them are still ridiculously cheap. OGDC is under one turn of EBITDA at this point, uh, even after the move, right? And you look at it and you think, wow, um, <laughs> how bad can possibly things get, get for these multiples to be reasonable. And I just think given what we spoke of earlier in terms of um, Chinese economic performance and especially Indian, right? I mean, these things are, are just set to do really, really well over the next couple of years. And uh, given the prices there, I, 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 I think the opportunity for equity guys out there is quite impressive. Excellent. All good stuff. I wrote all that down. Um, and Robert... Same question to you. Yeah, look, I like a lot of what both Aisha and Leonard said. Um, I draw parallels uh, from Aisha's comments about uh, the positioning in crude. Uh, I would say to me, one of the most unusual uh, positioning issues in uh, commodities markets right now is gold. Um, you have gold having performed very well in a period of time when net liquidation of, uh, uh, you know, net liquidation of um, contracts or net liquidation of ETFs 
have completely, uh, you know, blown away to the downside. And so you've had mass liquidation by uh, global ETF holders and gold's held up pretty well. And spec positioning is back to where it was in like 2018. And so you've got this really, really great setup. Um, I'd also agree with what Leonid said about um, what's going on with the global uh, resource companies. You know, we've been a big fan uh, and active on Twitter X uh, with uh, the Latin American majors um, that have been great stocks over the last few years. I think the opportunity set globally looks fantastic. So those who can, um, who uh, you know, have the ability to look outside U.S. and Canada, um, there's some really interesting opportunities out there. Big, massive free cash flows, high dividend yields that are worth taking a look at. Absolutely. I think uh, Latin America, South America looks great as well. Right. So, you know, everybody thought Lula was going to shut down production in Brazil and the opposite is happening. So yeah, now, now they're now they're going to be an observer at OPEC. So there you go. Exactly. So, boom. All right, guys, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Again, I know it's valuable. I know the listeners really appreciate uh, you giving us your time today. And then with that, I will see you guys next Wednesday. I hope everybody has a good rest of their day. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, guys.